This is a WKYT podcast. Good morning from WKYT News. We welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. I'm Bill Bryant. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Dr. Jason Glass, Kentucky's next education commissioner. We'll ask him about his plans and the challenges of taking the job during the pandemic. But first, a chance to catch up with U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's also running for re-election in Kentucky this year. The senator is appearing from Washington in his official capacity today, and our questions will be policy-based as announcements are being made about a proposed second round of actions to stimulate the economy. Senator McConnell is Kentucky's longest serving senator ever, first being elected in 1984. Leader McConnell, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it, uh, you giving us a few minutes. Glad to be with you, Bill. The pandemic has, uh, has brought a horrible death toll to the world and uh, certainly here in the United States. Are we doing what we need to do in terms of testing and mitigation and our own behavior uh, to get this deadly situation under control? Well, it's clearly not over. We're, we're having a surge in Kentucky, and we've seen it in Florida and Arizona and Texas. And if everybody's wondering what they can do, let me just point out that the one thing that each of us could do all across America to help protect ourselves and others is to wear a mask and practice social distancing. This coronavirus is not going to automatically go away. It's not going to go away until we get a vaccine. No one believes we'll have a vaccine sooner and available sooner than the end of the year or early next year. So in the meantime, we all need to work together to do something really simple, like wearing a mask and practicing social distancing. With regard to getting to the vaccine, <clears throat> we've got a Manhattan Project. For those of your viewers, the Manhattan Project was the term applied to the effort by the United States during World War II to get the atomic bomb to end the war. This is a Manhattan Project type focus on getting a vaccine. We're also working to get better testing, better treatment, but ultimately it doesn't go away until we have a vaccine. And uh, this is the, 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 the quickest, the most rapid deployment of resources in pursuit of a vaccine in the history of the world. And that's underway. Yes. And uh, it will be interesting to see if we can, once that uh, you know, is developed, if we can roll it out uh, quickly. You are confident that, that based on this uh, robust effort by the federal government that this vaccine can get to people fast? Well, much of the effort is not by the federal government, it's by the major pharmaceutical industries. We're helping, but you do raise a good question. Once you get the vaccine, how do you get it to people? We're gonna need a massive number of doses, not only for the United States, but for the rest of the world a massive number of doses. So one of the major pharmaceutical companies is already producing doses in the middle of the clinical trial. <clears throat> Assuming the clinical trial is gonna work out, they will not be starting at ground zero with a number of doses. So this is quite a challenge. And in the meantime, for all the rest of us saying, you know, what can I do? Uh, let me repeat, the only thing each of us can do as individuals is to try to practice uh, safety, wearing a mask, washing our hands, practicing social distancing. 
Point made. Thank you, Senator. The pandemic uh, has also upended the uh, U.S. economy, the world economy for that matter, but the, uh, the CARES Act was historic in scope. It was passed uh, earlier. Uh, how much more help is going to be needed to assist people and businesses and, and governments for that matter in getting back on their feet? Well, the highly successful CARES Act, which actually started in mouth as every bill has to start somewhere, was confronted with both propping up the economy, which the best healthcare experts we had told us we had to do to shut the economy down. We went from the best economy in 50 years in February to a depression era situation two and a half months later, and tackle the healthcare side of it as well. Uh, frankly, I think more does need to be done. And as we speak, Bill, we've been in discussions with the Secretary of the Treasury, who's in the lead uh, for the administration. And we're all going to be talking to the Democrats as soon as next week about coming together behind some kind of additional package. Let me tell you what I think ought to be done. Number one, liability protection for everyone related to the coronavirus, beginning in December of 2019 and going forward for four years for hospitals, doctors, nurses, businesses, colleges, universities, K through 12. We don't need an epidemic of lawsuits on the heels of the pandemic that we're already struggling with. We can't possibly get back to normal. So this provision would not rewrite the personal injury laws of every state in America, but it'd be narrowly crafted to deal with all of us who were dealing with the coronavirus during this period. That needs to be in there and will be in any bill that I introduce in the Senate. Further, we need to focus on kids in school, jobs, and healthcare. So if you're looking for a theme around a package, that's what I'm going to be recommending. I also think it ought to be no more than a trillion dollars, which is still an enormous amount of money. Remember, we've already added three trillion dollars to the national debt already, which makes our debt the size of our economy for the first time since World War II. Our Democratic friends over in the House passed another three trillion dollars on top of that, I think that was wildly extravagant and not narrowly crafted to deal with the situation we're confronted with here at the end of July. Senator, you have had called the, uh, the $600 additional unemployment payment coming from Congress uh, to uh, those uh, who are out of work uh, a disincentive uh, for some to get back into the workplace. Is that uh, uh, still the position you hold and do you oppose uh, renewing that? Yeah, let me just say first, with regard to unemployment insurance, unemployment is way higher than, than any of us would like. And traditional unemployment insurance designed to, to, to make people whole during a period of an unemployment period is extremely important. And so I support continuing that. It's a state program, basically, helping the states provide it for a longer period of time. What became controversial was you had a situation where people were actually making more money staying home than going back to work. And that's been a deterrent to some uh, to go back to work. If they look at the situation and say, gee, why would I want to go back to work? I can make more by staying home. That has been very controversial. And that's not going to be in the proposal that I will lay out as a starting place uh, for the Senate to consider. 
Senator uh, Governor Andy Bashir says Kentucky uh, is apparently able to uh, get through maybe even with a surplus in this fiscal year with its budget, but will face a crippling budget shortfall next year unless there is more federal money made available or restrictions are loosened uh, on what has already been allocated or more is allocated through the CARES Act. Will there be money for uh, state and local governments in, uh, in your package? Well, in my package, we're, we're going to give states total flexibility to use the money we've already allocated, which is $150 billion, not a small amount of money. Also, we're going to have a major part for education. And Bill, as you and your viewers know, uh, education is either the biggest or the second biggest part of every state budget, Medicaid being the other. We're going to have even more money in for education than the House did in their $3 trillion package. And that, of course, is aid to the states. Where do you see this uh, as far as passage? As you have pointed out, uh, there are uh, some Republicans who uh, believe that uh, the spending is extravagant. We don't have it. We're, we're uh, piling up more debt. And some Democrats who are saying uh, this is not enough. Uh, you have uh, worked on compromises through the years. Can you work something out on this? Well, I think so. It, you're, you're certainly correct. This is not likely to be uh, a, a bill in the end that passes unanimously like the CARES Act did. Uh, I think it is more partisan now than it was in March. We're closer to the presidential election, um, more sort of bickering, and so it will be challenging. On the other hand, we need to act. Uh, the unemployment insurance issue has to be tackled. The liability issue has to be tackled. I don't think kicking the can down the road uh, much longer is a good idea. And so hopefully in the next two or three weeks, we'll be able to come together and uh, pass something that we can send over to the House and down to the president for signature. But the president's proposed payroll tax uh, is uh, not likely to be part of this, correct? I don't think so. Uh, <clears throat> there's, there's bipartisan opposition to that. I understand the president's enthusiasm for it. Uh, but I think we're a lot better off <clears throat> just to send another uh, direct cash uh, payment uh, to those who've been left out of all of this. Uh, it's the quickest and easiest way to get relief. Uh, a payroll tax, of course, would only help those who have a job. And um, I think that's a more, a less efficient way to get relief to those who need it. Who do you see qualified, uh, being qualified for an additional uh, stimulus uh, payment or check? Well, uh, we know the people that have been hit the hardest are those who make $40,000 a year or less. A very large number of those people have been in the hospitality field, working in hotels, uh, restaurants, They've been hammered during this period, and the ones that I think need the help uh, the most. Senator, we've seen uh, unrest in the country in the wake of the high-profile deaths of uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in Louisville. Uh, there have been calls to defund and demilitarize local police departments around the country. On the other hand, there are those who say, you know, better training and recruitment and honest conversations uh, would be the best way forward. Is there an approach that, that you favor uh, to make better race relations and policing in America? Well, I put on the floor, tried to put on the floor, a bill crafted by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, African-American Republican, that we thought 
could address the issue. And in the Senate, it requires cooperation from both sides to actually take up a bill. And Senate Democrats voted unanimously not to even take it up. Uh, so it looks to me like we're at gridlock here at the federal level over some kind of police reform bill. Having said that, uh, police are basically state and local employees. I think every state government has to decide how to tackle this issue. I think defunding the police is nonsense. If you've got a problem, what are you supposed to do? Call a social worker? Uh, police are essential. Uh, efforts to weed out uh, bad cops, everybody's in favor of. Uh, but those kind of decisions are made at the state and local level. We tried to be helpful at the federal level, but got blocked by Senate Democrats. So I'm not anticipating we're going to be passing something at this level, which does not necessarily mean these problems won't be tackled at the more appropriate level anyway at the state and local level. Senator, early in the 2016, a vacancy occurred on the U.S. Supreme Court. You said it was inappropriate then for the Senate to consider it in the final months of President Obama's term. We're later in a presidential election year now. If an opening were to occur on the U.S. Supreme Court before the end of the congressional term and the appointment failed to President Trump, would you push for that nominee to be considered? Actually, what I said in 2016 was it had been since the 1880s that a, that a Senate controlled by a party different from the White House uh, had filled a vacancy on the court created during the presidential election. That was the situation in 2016. You had a Republican Senate, a Democratic president. You do not have that situation today. You have a Senate and a president of the same party. We have no vacancies on the Supreme Court. I don't anticipate any, but the answer to your hypothetical is, if there were a vacancy, there being a Senate and a Republican and a president of the same party, yes, we would fill it, just like I said back in 2016. Senator, this just handed to me, the ACLU of Kentucky has sent a letter to you and Senator Paul urging the expansion of COVID-19 testing, and we've talked about all the realms of that. This will be our final question. Uh, do you uh, support more testing, universal testing, uh, underwritten by the federal government? Yeah, we've already sent $100 million down to Kentucky for testing. I don't think we still have enough. Uh, testing across the country, and we are more than open to spending additional money on testing and treatment and vaccine in the next coronavirus relief bill if, in fact, we be, uh, believe that more funding uh, would be helpful. Really appreciate you uh, giving us a few minutes on a very busy day for you in Washington. Uh, we appreciate it, Senator McConnell. And uh, uh, in a few weeks, we'll get you back. We'll talk about uh, campaign uh, 2020. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you for uh, being with us here this morning. Now, coming next, we're going to hear from Kentucky's new education commissioner, Dr. Jason Glass, in just a moment. We welcome you back to Kentucky Newsmakers, and we're glad you're here. This is a historic time in education, both in Kentucky and, of course, across the country. Schools have had to grapple with the pandemic in the spring. That meant sending students home to learn to keep the disease from spreading. COVID-19 continues to spread as the school year is approaching. Dr. Jason Glass will soon take on the challenge of overseeing Kentucky school systems. He has been named the new state education commissioner. He takes over in September. Currently, 
Kennedy serves as the superintendent of Jeffco Public Schools outside of Denver, Colorado. And he's joining us now remotely, and we appreciate that, Dr. Glass. Thank you very much, and congratulations on your selection. Thanks so much. I'm excited to get to work. Was coming home to the Commonwealth a, a major reason you were interested in this job? Absolutely. Um, it's a state that gave me so much growing up. It really showed me that powerful connection between school and community. My parents were both teachers, and so I grew up around schools, running around uh, buildings with my mom and dad. Uh, so schools were, were a big part of my life growing up. Uh, in addition to a great public education, I had a wonderful university experience in the state at the University of Kentucky and, and had my first professional uh, teaching experiences in, in Colorado as well, or I'm sorry, in Kentucky as well. So it's, it's been uh, something that's been on my mind and the opportunity to come home and serve the Commonwealth, a state that has given so much to me is, is a major pull. And, and the reason that I applied for the position. Yeah. Uh, our viewers are familiar certainly with Hazard, where you uh, began your career, right? Yes, I, I uh, started teaching and coaching in Hazard. I taught at the at Hazard High School uh, in the uh, social studies department, uh, taught uh, world civilizations and geography and coached football and track. Uh, and it's an amazing community. The um, the tightness of the connections there. And again, that, that powerful uh, pull uh, and connection between schools and community, you certainly see it in a place like Hazard and a, and a place that has a rich tradition of, uh, of good schools and, and of, of the community supporting its schools. Do you foresee it will be important to you as Education Commissioner to get out in the Commonwealth and visit schools and, and, and go see how things are uh, getting done in the various uh, districts? If we weren't living under the threat of COVID, that absolutely would be the, the first thing that I would do is get out and visit uh, as much of the state as I possibly could. Uh, while, while I grew up in Kentucky and, and have deep roots there, my, all my family is still in, in Kentucky, uh, mostly in, in the Glasgow and, and Metcalf County areas. Um, I, I need a lot of context that I need to catch up on. I need to understand the current situations and things that people are dealing with. Um, so th that getting out and, and visiting parts of the state would have been important. I'm now going to have to do that remotely uh, and with phone calls. Um, and where we can get in person and, and socially distance, that, that'll be what we'll do. But it'll, it'll be a combination of things to really get up to speed on the things uh, that are challenging Kentucky schools uh, and that are on educators' minds and parents' minds and, and students' minds. Well, as we said, this is uh, one of the most challenging times uh, ever uh, for schools around the nation and uh, here in Kentucky. So uh, you'll be coming in right in the middle of the schools having just started, decisions being made about to whether to continue online or to bring uh, students back and all of that. Do you plan to be uh, involved in those decisions or do you uh, expect those will be made uh, completely at the local level? Well, I'm under contract here in Jeffco uh, until the beginning of September, and that is the very question that we're wrestling with here is how do we restore some kind of in-person learning experience and at the same time do everything we can to keep our students, our staff, and our community safe and not allow our schools to become a vector by which the virus spreads. That is the exact same question that every superintendent, uh, every school leader, and really everyone connected to public education is wrestling with in Kentucky and across the country. I expect by the time that I arrive in Kentucky, you'll have schools underway. That'll be early September. So a lot of those decisions will be made. But we're seeing a lot of districts open up under a remote setting or a non-NTI, a non-traditional instruction setting. 
uh, where they're having kids work at home and on computers. Uh, I think I, I understand that uh, and, and the urgency to do that that's driven out of um, uh, trying to protect a staff and community from the virus. But I really think we've got to work hard on creating some kind of in-person experience, uh, putting in place uh, layers of virus mitigation techniques. We've seen international systems be successful at doing this. Um, although they did have lower incidence of virus transmission in their communities. And I think that's a challenge that's before all of us uh, in Kentucky and around this country. Um, we've got to help schools get open by doing our part to not be, uh, let ourselves be vectors by which we spread the virus in our community. So you would agree with those who say, uh, you know, online instruction is good, thank heavens we have it, but it is much better to have uh, in-person learning if that's possible. Absolutely. I think that we were forced into an all remote or an all online setting this spring. We're glad that we had that. We really didn't have any other choice, uh, but we know that students, <clears throat> excuse me, suffered um, uh, academically in some cases, developmentally, social, emotionally. We know that it also had an impact on our economy. It had an impact on families. Uh, and so I do feel strongly that, that uh, we should be working towards some kind of in-person experience we have a lot of flexibility about how that looks. There are lots of interesting models around alternating day schedules, alternating week schedules, where we effectively can reduce the number of students that are in a building at any given time and allow for social distancing. Schools should be thinking about other virus mitigation techniques like temperature screens and, and wellness checks upon entering the buildings, changing their ventilation system, maximizing fresh air, putting in improved filters, uh, sanitation and cleaning procedures. There's a number of things that we can do. Again, we've seen international systems put into place uh, that I think we have to consider. And we've got, we have students that uh, re require services and supports that they just cannot receive remotely uh, or, or on the computer. So for those reasons, I think that it, we have to keep working the problem. Uh, I know that it's challenging and I know that yeah. it's scary, uh, but these are, these are Kentucky's children that we're talking about. Dr. Glass. So I think we've got, we've got to work really hard on, on trying to restore some version of this. What would be your broad goals for the, the future of uh, Kentucky education uh, you know, outside this immediate uh, emergency situation we're dealing with? Well, getting through COVID would be the, the first step. Uh, but at the same time, I think we also have to uh, take on the very challenging issue of anti-racism and equity. Uh, public education has a part uh, in that, that that we need to consider. What have we done as systems to contribute to uh, racism or inequity problems in the Commonwealth. That's an emotional and difficult conversation, but it's certainly an important one for Kentucky and for the, the country right now. So it's work that we have to lean into. Uh, I also think that there are uh, challenging budget years uh, that may be on the horizon that we, we, we strongly believe are gonna be on the horizon that we're gonna have to support schools in, in navigating. Now, once we get through some of those more um, intermediate challenges, I really think that a conversation is due in Kentucky around what the future of the schools should look like, what school could be for the Commonwealth. Uh, we know that we have an education system that's primarily been based on the transmission of content knowledge or information from one generation to the next. But in the, eras, in the era of smartphones and iPhones and tablets and all the devices and things that we have that are only gonna proliferate, information is really easy to acquire. But what you do with that information and can you trust it and how you use it how you use it to compete in a globally interconnected economy, those are the more important questions that we need to be asking. And, and is our education system 
really preparing our students for that complicated and competitive future. All right, worthy goals, and uh, we wish you well and look forward to your arrival here in the Commonwealth. Thank Thanks you so much. Good. I'm honored to serve. Appreciate you. And we hope you'll stay with us on WKYT. And welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. COVID-19 deaths and hospitalizations are now surging in much of the U.S. President Trump warns the pandemic could get worse before it gets better. According to official records, the nation is barreling toward 4 million coronavirus cases. But the CDC says the actual count could be 13 times that. The virus will keep raging until we find a vaccine. And our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, has the latest on the quest for an immunization. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. Around the world, researchers racing to find a COVID-19 vaccine. Roughly 200 possible vaccines already in development. More than two dozen now in human trials. Wednesday, the U.S. government announcing it will pay Pfizer and BioNTech nearly $2 billion for an effective vaccine. Overall, the federal government is preparing to invest more than $6 billion in at least seven vaccine projects. The Trump administration hopes to have a safe vaccine by the end of this year. But will it be ready to distribute a vaccine when the time comes? I asked Congresswoman and former HHS Secretary Donna Shalala what she thinks. The distribution system for flu vaccines is what we'll use for COVID. The drugstores, the pharmacists will be extremely important. Walmart, all of the stores that normally distribute flu vaccines um, and as well as the entire healthcare system can be the distribution system. Right now we get about 45% of the people to sign them up, sign up for flu vaccines. We need to get that up to 7D this fall. Then we will know what kind of infrastructure we have, but we don't have to jerry build it. We have it. We simply have to do a test run this fall. Congresswoman Shalala also said it is essential that states take on the anti-vaxxer movement. She called it, quote, a ridiculous anti-science position that puts others at risk. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 1130 on WKYT. Well, that's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning, and we hope you make it a good week ahead.